0: views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I don't know what to do, Rabbi. Every night he listens to the radio.
1: I can't keep him away. Mm. I, I say go to the beach, play in the sun, get some fresh air.
0: No, the Lone Ranger, uh, the Shadow, the Masked yes, Avenger. No. No, this is not good. This boy needs discipline, radio. It's alright once in a while, otherwise. It tends to induce bad values, false dreams, lazy habits. Listening to the radio, these stories of foolishness and violence, this is no way for a boy to grow up.
1: You speak the truth,
0: my faithful Indian companion.
1: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, September 6th. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing, Just Right. Fade into
0: colour, colour into black and white, under the everything will be
1: alright. Good morning everyone, and welcome to the show. Uh, 519-661-3600 if you'd like to call in and comment on anything we'll be talking about today. And, of course, you can write to Just Write at justwritechrw at gmail.com. And the person who will be answering the phone, if you happen to call in, will be our per- producer here. Ira, how you doing this morning?
0: Oh, I'm just peachy there, Bob. Yeah, just peachy. Are,
1: are those uh, allergies really getting to you? I think you've been having a bit of problems with them, eh? Oh, I'm popping, reacting like yeah. it was candy. Oh. Hey, uh, the campus looks a little different this morning. Is there something going on that I don't know about? <laughs> <laughs> yes, school started. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I just couldn't believe the difference. I mean, you know coming here during the summer it's like a wasteland really you know and then today I'm dodging people every five feet trying to get into the parking lot.
0: Not to mention the great big uh... uprise of students in uh, all the residences. Oh absolutely
1: yeah it is noticeable for sure. Listen today on the show... I'm going to talk about a number of things. Uh, Part two of a subject I introduced last week, uh, socialism, we'll get into part two of that, in a subject I call Fascism and Frogs. We're also going to be talking about uh, the subject of where no man has gone before, a look at Star Trek, and some interesting new developments in that field, and maybe a different look at that show than perhaps you've been used to hearing in the past. And uh, if I even have time, we'll get into a little bit about uh, the nature of war and uh, what, why, why we even have wars, because these are subjects that have been in the media lately. But first, I want to begin with uh, something that attracted my attention in the National Post, and I guess I'll call this uh, subject uh, Stupid Vacuous Politics. Are you an airhead? Then Canadian politics could be for you. And what I'm reacting to here is an article appearing in the National Post, a couple actually, both on September 1st of, of this month, of this year. And uh, it, was, uh, it was actually an editorial that appeared on the front page of the National Post by Andrew Coyne, and the, the heading read, Why Politics Here is Stupid, which is kind of a blunt heading, to say the least. Nothing can match Canadian politics for sheer vacuity. Says Andrew Coyne, writer of the editorial. And he basically is uh, looking at the political scene both federally and provincially. Now, on the federal scene, here's what he has to say. He says, uh, you know, that the liberals are well prepared for the fall session, having staked out a series of facile, simple minded positions on difficult, complex issues, a plainly unattainable a uh, 35% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by next year, a unilateral withdrawal from a multilateral mission in Afghanistan, hints of bailouts for manufacturers, and so on. And he says the Conservatives, for their part, seem to have lost all interest in policy. Provincially, Coyne comments that at the provincial level, the election in, uh, in Ontario promises to be the most tedious non-event in living memory, The Liberals can hardly dare to issue a platform, having broken every promise in the past. The Tories, principled sorts, have declined to offer much of any. Now, of course, uh, that's changing a little bit right now, because I think we're going to be expecting the Liberals to release that platform sometime today. And uh, for those of you who've been watching the local scene, of course, the provincial politics has uh, started to center around another issue, the whole issue of faith-based funding, which was actually brought to the front pages of the paper today by uh, both Jim Chapman and Paul McKeever, two friends of mine, and people that we've had on the show here, and I've been on Jim's show, and uh, now it's interesting to see them in a debate over that. But uh, that's not the focus today, but I think that's where we'll be, what we'll be talking about next week. But just to carry on with uh, Coyne's generalized comments on, on politics in Canada, because he made some points that I, I, I do identify with. And he asks the question, is there any politics on earth that's shallower, more boorish, less worthy of attention of, of serious people than Canadian politics? His answer, he says, There is none. Canadian politics is uniquely stupid. Our politics may not be quite as crude as the Americans, as cynical as the French, as corrupt as the Japanese, but for sheer vacuity, there is none to match us. We are conditioned to deny this, to expect that politics is always and everywhere a game for morons. But it it wasn't always quite as bad as this, and it isn't in other countries. So Coyne goes on, he goes on to refer to the uh, British, the Australian, and the New Zealand Parliament's Prime Minister's question period debates. And he comments that the questions, as often as not, are actually questions, and the answers bear a striking resemblance to real answers. No, really, he says. Debate is generally at a higher level in Britain, even outside politics, but the detail and seriousness with which the parties approach policy questions is notable. Uh, you know, I said this once uh, on the show here, a couple times. So I said it several times. That uh, if you watch BBC and you see the, uh, the leadership debates there, it's a completely different feel. Even if you don't agree with one side or the other or both sides, you feel like you're watching something with a little bit of more substance to it and a little bit of more uh, information and uh, objectivity to it, despite the subjectivity of the positions taken. Uh, Coin cites uh, an issue of uh, pioneer schools proposed as a means of helping parents, uh, quote, fed up with the local provision but unable to afford private education is one of the issues being very seriously discussed in Britain. And he comments, and I quote, Bear in mind, this is from the David Cameron Conservatives, widely criticized as lightweights, yet when was the last time anyone suggested anything half so bold here, whether on education or any other matter? The only debate in this country is whether to spend more money or even more. And that is so true. It's not, you never hear the issue discussed about whether we should spend less or people should spend on their own. It's just a matter of whether the politicians are going to take the money out of your right pocket or are they going to take it out of your left pocket. So he asks the question. He says, why is Canadian politics so moronic? It isn't that our politicians are especially stupid, as people like Stephen Harper, Stephane Dion, and Michael Ignatius are all intelligent men, he says. They just behave like idiots. It's institutional, a culture of vapidity that drags even the best down to its level, end quote. And here he refers, of course, to what we might call a systemically corrupt system. You know, we talk I've talked about corruption in government before and saying that, you know, the government's corrupt when it does this thing or that thing. And I think often people think that what I'm saying by using that word is that uh, somebody's evil, somebody's doing something wrong. Uh, That could be the case, but I think in a majority of cases it is not. It's the system itself is corrupt, and therefore even a good person, uh, a person with the best intentions, with the best uh, objectives in mind, once they are tossed into the system, as it exists now, is kind of forced into a narrow uh, band of of activity that he cannot get away from. So we say that it's sort of systemically corrupt. It's kind of like saying, um, you know, when you're on your computer and it bombs on you, And you say you've got a corrupt file. Well, we don't go around saying that's an evil file or that it's uh, morally bankrupt or anything like that. We know it's corrupt because it is dysfunctional. And in that sense, that's one of the meanings of the word corrupt, dysfunctional. And so a lot of what we see in government is just patently dysfunctional because of the way we approach issues. And we approach issues always the same way. We're going to rob Peter to pay Paul, and it's just a matter of which party defines which group is Peter, and which party defines which group is Paul, and uh, then we go on this uh, war for each other's money, when really, the proper response, I think, is to let people spend their own money on the things they want to spend them on. Now, Coyne offers five basic explanations in terms of why he thinks our governments are generally systemically corrupt, and, and I've just sort of summarized them here. He, he, number one, he says, a, a peculiarly rigid tradition of party discipline. Number two, uh, the interference of provincial premiers and national debates, which he refers to as power without responsibility, and I agree with him there, um, you know, which kind of creates regional politics and conflicts. Three, he says uh, it's the press gallery, though he offers no specifics other than suggesting that they're alienated from the whole uh, political situation. And interestingly, he talks about the size and the shape of the commons. Uh, You know, he says, quote, the two sides of the house are so close to each other uh, that they almost touch. uh, He's talking about now in... uh, in, in England, though, okay? And he says, in consequence, rather than bellow across the aisle, they're obliged to talk to, an, to one another. They don't sit at a row of desks like they do here. And they recline on benches there as it was done in ancient times. And I've seen that, and it, it does seem to tend to have something to do with the environment, but certainly I don't think you can blame these superficial things for um, basically, you know, why our parliament is the way it is. And the fifth thing he blames on our boring politics is, ironically, peace and prosperity. You know, he says, when you don't really have a a big national crisis or anything like that, uh, our attentions generally turn to other issues. Now, uh, interestingly, on the same day, on September 1st, another article appeared in the Post called Who Wants to Be Canada's Gray Davis, Uh, and this one's written by uh, David Frum, and... uh, You know, he says, to make progress towards the only solution that makes sense, governments defer to ignorant fears. And uh, he comments that mixing sense with nonsense is apparently the way we do politics here in Ontario. Uh, Quote, this week, and this is referring to September 1st, uh, Ontario's power generation monopoly has released a new report calling for further doses of, quote, sense mixed with nonsense. Sense, he says, in this case, is nuclear power. Nonsense is the fantasy that we can conserve our way out of our energy and environmental problems. Almost no one who has studied the issue seriously believes this fantasy, but almost everyone feels obliged to you know to pretend to believe it. End quote. Uh, from compares the costs and benefits of nuclear power versus you know other ways of producing power like wind and solar primarily and demonstrates how wasteful the latter still are compared to the former. They may be emerging technologies, but in terms of being efficient either economically or even with respect to the environment, they're not quite there yet. Uh, But his greatest criticism is reserved reserved for the silly idea that somehow conservation will in any way address our energy needs, and I agree with him there, it just won't. He says, quote, most fantastic of all is the idea that the problem need not even be addressed, that by switching off lights, investing in efficiency efficiency technologies, that we can somehow cap total electricity usage at current levels or even reduce them, end quote. He notes that we are already using energy far more efficiently than we did as recently as 1990. He says, per additional dollar of output, Canada today uses only three-quarters as much energy as in 1990. But, now here's the key, and this is what you cannot control. Canada's total output is up at least 50% more than in 1990. So, like, per unit, we are all being more efficient. But that doesn't make a big difference when there's 50% more of us. So, naturally, uh, you know, that's a, you just can't cut back that much. You know, he says we hear a lot nowadays about conserving resources, and he says, and this is, to me, the point of the article, something that really differentiated it from most of the stuff I read. He says it's important to remember that capital and labor are resources too, and that they really are, uh, you know, the ultimate resources. You know, labor is econo-speak for human life, he says. An electric washer and dryer that shorten dishwashing and washing by half an hour a day, 180 hours a year, ninety-nine thousand hours over an adult lifetime, perform exactly the same function as a medical treatment that extends average life expectancies by a year. So if you're not spending a year doing the laundry, you've got that year and time to be doing something else that you would rather be doing, and that adds that much more leisure and pleasure to your life. And capital, he says, is likewise a fancy term for money. And money can be used for anything. When we spend more than needed to produce electricity, we're wasting it. Money that could be invested in new technology, that could aid the poor, that could research new medicines, and goes instead to operate windmills to, you know, to the job that nuclear power plant could do at a far lower price. And to call this conservation, he says, is to spend dollars to save dimes. So why do we do it? We do it because we're making our energy decisions politically rather than economically. You know, there was a, I remember a long time ago when he was senior economist of the Fraser Institute, Dr. Walter Block uh, gave a speech, actually at a Freedom Party function, and he was talking about how, you know, when you're talking economically, uh, something being economical, in dollar and cents terms, that generally turns out to be the most efficient way to do it in a number of other ways. In reality, with respect to the environment, with respect to time, with respect to energy, because that's what economics means. Animals are trying to be economical by conserving energy in the way that they survive in nature. So it's really what you're doing by being economical is conserving, and yet we try to spend money on conservation as though we're being conserving by wasting money. But, he, but notes from, governments know that voters with only a very hazy idea of how nuclear power works fear a technology they generally associate with nuclear weapons, and so in order to make progress towards the only solution that makes sense, governments defer to ignorant fears and make re, you know, reverent genuflections to nonsense, just like the Roman emperors performing cynical sacrifices to the gods in whom they never believed in. And that's sort of a historical fact as well you see you see that expressed a lot in some of those biblical epics when you see the politicians talking in Rome how they're going to manipulate the masses by talking about the gods this god and that god that way of course they don't believe in them themselves but if that's what the public believes in that's what you give them and uh... you know at this point he reminds us of the second governor ever to be recalled in all of american history who was gray davis in california and who failed to allow market forces to govern California's electricity crisis back in 2001 and 2002. That was when, uh, you know, you'll see, hear a lot of lefties say, oh, no, that was when they deregulated. No, they'd only deregulated their retail rates. They did not deregulate the wholesale rates, and thus they had a, a, a shortage of electricity. And to call that deregulation is a complete misnomer. It's either all or nothing. you got a free market or you don't have a free market. As soon as the government sticks its finger in one place on in that whole equation, then the whole thing is no longer really a free market. So, you know, it takes a great deal of courage and conviction for rational people to enter the political fray in any meaningful sort of way. And I think this is one of the greatest difficulties that I've had in trying to get people interested in politics, because to most of them they think politics is boring at best, irrational at its usual, and evil at its worst. That's about all I got to say about politics. I think where you're seeing what's happening in this uh, provincial election, we'll certainly be talking more about that next week and the whole issue of uh, faith-based funding and religion in schools. When we come back after this break, where no man has gone before, and we'll be telling you something new about the whole Star Trek phenomenon. Back after this. This is fun coming out here. I'm going to be a big star in Canada. I'm going to do a Canadian version of Who
0: Wants to Be a Millionaire called Who Wants $672,000. has to be irreversible. The ship's computers can access all the medical knowledge the Federation has. I'll do my best, Pavel. Count on it. That's not good enough. You have to find a cure. There has to be one. If there isn't... You always have an answer. Lieutenant, maybe you'd better think about putting a few things in order. Just in case. I don't have to. I'll report to my station now. Mr. Shekhov, in your condition, I think it's best that you remain here in sickbay. Unless Dr. McCoy thinks it's all
1: right, you may return to your quarters. But I feel fine. If you're a Star Trek fan, and that didn't quite sound right to you, don't blame yourself. It's from an episode that has never been aired, and never will be aired on television. Uh, For those of you who are fans of Star Trek, I want to turn you on to a site called, it's com, and it's all about a bunch of amateur people and w- together with some of the classic actors and co-stars in the series Star Trek who are redoing, believe it or not, the original Star Trek versions uh with Captain Kirk and all that. And you have a whole different cast here. Um James Cawley is Captain Kirk, Jeffrey Quinn as Spock, uh John Kelly or uh as Dr. McCoy, Charles Root as Mr. Scott, a whole list of people that you really wouldn't know. And they're you know, it's basically amateur act. Now I know Ira... Uh, I've burned some copies for you, and that's legal to do by the way uh you know they tell you when you download these things by the way all you know go ahead and copy them but uh, you know you can give them to your friends they don't make profit off of these mm-hmm. um so what did you think when you saw that were you, were you surprised at what these people are doing? I was very surprised uh looking
0: at the production and uh the way the lighting the camera work, everything was done. this would have easily seen the air probably about forty thirty years ago. It it's that's really amazing the c- kind of work that they really put into this.
1: I but was I was quite amazed. You know, when I, I would say the special effects are far superior. Mm-hmm. to the original 60s Star Trek series. Would you agree with me on that one?
0: Very much so, especially when they have shots of the Enterprise from outside in space, the the planets, uh, especially during one episode that you uh, lent me, and it was from the Star Trek Farragut.
1: Oh, yes, that's a, that's, a, that's already their own spin-off. Yes. Yeah,
0: and uh, well, I was very surprised to see how they were able to, not to give too much away, but and able to see that great big mountain with this, big clean-on ray gun on top oh, right, of it. Yeah. I was like, I was very surprised about that.
1: And and, and it's just amazing what they have accomplished with uh, CGI graphics and things like that. Now, what would you say the weakness of, of these series are? Or have you thought about that very oh, there much?
0: Oh, there's there's quite a few weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, I will give it kudos for them putting together such a, a uh, for amateurs, a very well-put-together episode that really could see airtime. Uh, the weaknesses is definitely in the acting, though. Bingo. Bingo. Uh, very monotone very uh, robotic Uh, the script writing uh, has failed in some points because you can see that uh, in some examples you see things that normal Star Trek people wouldn't I know this is gonna start labeling me as a Trekkie or something but uh, the way they have it written they start doing things that you normally would never see someone in the Academy would never do
1: and no, you know, I, I agree with you on what you said about uh, certainly the acting because you're dealing with an amateur uh, group of people. By the way, they, the people who star in these, they're doing this with their own money and their own time. And apparently the fellow that plays Captain Kirk, James Colley, he's, he's an Elvis Presley impersonator. <laughs> That's what he does in, in, his, uh, in his real uh, endeavor in life, I guess. But uh, I know you haven't seen that third one uh, Mm -hmm. yet, the one that I just played the clip from, and I think you're going to see a huge improvement in every regard. Um, What is amazing, I thought, was that um, they got Gene Roddenberry Jr. to do the consulting Mm -hmm. for some of those scripts. They got D.C. Fontana to write the script for that third one, and and, uh, she was uh, a writer for the early Star Trek series. And... um, Certainly I thought that uh, second one, uh, "What's In Harm's Way, uh, had, a, had a superior story, even though mm-hmm. the acting uh, left something to be desired. I found after watching for about ten minutes, I kind of put it aside. I was, I was actually seeing Captain Kirk and Spock, and yeah. some of the cast members are much better
0: exactly the uh, the great thing about this is that you can't stop watching uh, not to like give it too uh, <laughs> tons and tons of credits and to really uh put a heap of praise on it there are some faults with it but you just really can't stop looking at it because the way they do the storylines the way they everything it was really passable everything is very Star Trek esque.
1: Oh, completely. And I think they've done something bold to to, to borrow on the phrase uh, by even attempting to do something like this. It, it's got to have cost them a lot of money. There's got to be some big budgets there. This is not uh, mm-hmm. cheapo special effects. I think you'll find uh, the acting in that third episode, uh, which was called "To Serve All My Days." It actually starred Walter Koenig playing himself or playing Chekhov as he did in the original. Mm-hmm. And they had a younger actor. I know you haven't seen this yet. Playing him um, as the younger version of uh, Chekhov, and he was a good actor. Mm-hmm. I think if you watch him, I think you'll find uh, this guy might have an acting career ahead of him. Mm-hmm. And uh, they brought some other people in from Star Trek, o- old Star Trek episodes as well, that that people who are regular fans would notice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the uh, the only, those were the only, only weak points I could think of, though, was the was the casting, the acting, and a little bit weakness on the on this on the on some of the sets too Mm because you can tell that some of them they they're just like in the back of somebody's garage but that can be forgivable because of the fact that they again they're amateur actors they are putting forth their own money you have to cut corners where you can when the evil dead came out the same thing there they just went and found the ideal location and dressed it up as best they could so it's a real credit to them that they were able to pull this off the highlights is definitely the special effects with the cgi uh, the uh the way everything was written and one thing that always sticks out surprise may surprise you is the music. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely great selection on yeah. the music and if that was uh, if that wasn't taken from any place else and it was composed very well done.
1: Oh, uh, if you're not looking at the screen you think you're hearing the original series. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think the actual bridge itself was a great duplication of the original. Of course they they've had help from uh, the actual Star Trek folks, you know, and, and mm-hmm. they're giving them the input and uh, stuff like that. So, listen, folks, if you're interested in seeing something new in Star Trek, and it is really compelling to watch, it's a little bit like mixing a live stage play. I guess in a way with with the broadcast version almost like you're mixing it, you know. Yeah. And uh that's www.newvoyages.com. They also have another site called wwwiftcommand.com uh called the International Federation of Trekkers where they actually take uh you can join up, be a member, and I think that's partially how they fund the shows. And you can just download them. They make great DVDs and uh, they're fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, That's it for that section now. Now, the reason I bring this up today at all is, uh, you know, a regular listener of the show noticed that I do use a lot of Star Trek clips on this show from time to time, and I thought uh, that is very true. Um, Maybe uh, I've used at least 15 or 16 out of the 160 or 70 clips I've actually played on this show so far. (laughs) And, you know, part of the reason is that Star Trek is a is it's a cultural icon it's a moral barometer if you will it's very recognizable to people even if they do not follow the series that directly um, I think another thing about Star Trek is that uh, it concerns itself with it's, it's not really about science fiction you know I Science fiction, I think, has something going for it that a lot of other forms of art and culture don't, and that's that they can project into the future and do things you can't get away with literalism or literal interpretation, like history. Um... You know, there's at least one episode, if not more, in Star Trek that deal with almost every imaginal philosophical subject you could come up with. Uh, I've, I've heard so many people talk about Star Trek in the sense of um, why they think it's so popular. Oh, it offers a positive view on the future. Oh, it's uh, it's got all these gadgets. It's this and that. That's th- Some of those reasons are some of the reasons people don't watch the series. But what I really think and have thought from the beginning that the reason the series was and continues to be as popular as it is. Uh, by the way, it is still uh, among the highest rated uh, on television demographic groups, between especially among males between 18 and 55, and even today. Uh, that's why you see it played over and over again on the Space Channel, and uh, there's a couple other channels that play it too. Even uh, A Channel here, I think, plays, and by Star Trek now, I mean... All of the five series that they actually did, you know, they, they, all the same thing, the same the same reaction. You, these things just play over and over again, and that is because, just like mythology and um, um, you know parables, say from the Bible, they are that's a, that's almost what they are. Uh, they are little philosophical messages, and that's what really appeals is, the, is those philosophical messages, the moral, the the, uh, uh, the ethics behind what's going on in the, in whatever they're talking about. Uh, where else could you do, for example, uh, take Captain Kirk and you split him in two on a <laughs> when he beams up, eh? And then you can have his evil side and his good side, and you can talk about the relationship between those two things in a very visual way that you could never do if you were doing it with, quote, reality TV or something like that. And, of course, then you can make philosophic statements. And we discover, for example, in that episode, that uh, some aggression is important for your survival. If you're just passive and you sit around and don't do anything, that's the fastest way to death. And and that, that might be a controversial issue. They can, of course, deal with um, very controversial issues. Let's say racism, which was a huge issue when the original Star Trek uh, came out on on the air in the 60s. I don't know if you remember the times, but here we were in London, not far from Detroit. The city was half-burning with racial riots. The same thing was happening in Tampa and Florida. I was actually down there uh, when it was happening, and it's a weird thing to see a big chunk of a city burning, and you're just a tourist going by on your way to Disney World or something. But, um, you know, dealing with aliens and different species, you could comment on issues that have to do with differences uh, Racially and culturally here among the one race that exists, the human race. And Star Trek was able to do that. It was also the first uh, series on television that today might be called politically correct by uh, mixing races. You know, we had uh, different people on the bridge of the Enterprise and things like that. And uh, they weren't always, they weren't all white people like it had been up until then. And that, by the way, at the time, was extraordinarily politically incorrect to do. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had a heck of a time uh, fighting with NBC and a number of the other broadcasters to even get away with it. And uh, when it finally happened, of course, we find that, in fact, they were very much in sync with the public. Uh, I think I think Star Trek too is a form of art that uh, I would call real art compared to the stuff I was talking about last week. The subsidized art—it's not government subsidized. It was put together with real money with with you know the people who are actually working on it. Uh, something else you may not know, and I know this indirectly from other books I've read, but uh, many of the writers of Star Trek were extremely uh, what I would call free thinkers, let us say, and uh, many of them were very explicitly influenced by people like Ayn Rand and other free uh, thinkers, and it came out in many of the uh, basic devices on on Star Trek. You know, you have uh, you had the Prime Directive, for example, which is sort of a way of saying laissez-faire, laissez-faire capitalism. It was a a policy of non-interference. Not non-involvement, but non-interference. You know, you leave people alone to make their own decisions and, and choose their own course. Um, we, we had something called the Federation, which in a sense was the United Nations of Outer Space, only this one didn't allow criminal nations in its membership like our <laughs> United Nations does. And, you know, Captain Kirk actually used the term individual rights and talked about freedom and, you know, that it's the nature of man to be free and that we cannot be, uh, you know, held in chains, that kind of thing. Um You'd see issues of principles versus expediency and, you know, defenses, uh, things like that. Now, you know, when you get back to the science fiction aspect of it, I think again here that people misunderstand what a lot of the devices, and I'm talking about the science fiction devices in Star Trek really were. For example, you have uh, the transporter, you had the warp drive, you got time travel. Most people would say, well, these are science fiction devices. And I'm going to say no. They're not really science fiction devices. They are dramatic devices, used to uh, you know either help convey a moral message in a in a symbolic way, and it saved a lot of time in terms of. Uh, For example, when you did something in time travel, you could show different outcomes of cause and effect. What if you did it this way? You know, And then they go back in time. Well, what if you did it this way? Then this effect happens. You couldn't do those things in real life, of course. We suspend our disbelief, and that's what I think they call it in theater, the suspension of disbelief, when we accept these devices without letting them interfere with our appreciation of what is real in the rest of the show. And I know some people are unable to do this, all they see is gadgets and phasers fired and weird aliens and stuff like that. And that just turns them off. My father was like that. He could not watch uh, an episode of Star Trek. I have told the story before about how one day he told us that you know, he didn't like, couldn't watch that show because of the guy with the mask and we were all wondering what he was talking about, and it turned out after prodding him for a while, he was talking about Worf, (laughs) the Klingon. He just didn't see that guy as an alien. He saw him as some guy walking in the room wearing a mask, and it kind of, you know, hurt the show for him. So, uh, you know, sometimes they write it all off to being some monster show or horror fantasy that has no bearing whatever on their day-to-day life. Uh, You know, in Star Trek II, The Next Generation, data is not an android. Data is a dramatic device. It allows the writers to examine, you know, the human condition from a perspective not open to them in uh, normal, realistic drama. So Data is able to examine issues from emotion to humor to art uh, to human behavior and um, comment on them by combining the intelligence of an educated genius with the innocence of a child who questions everything around him. And that really uh, gives us a way of looking at ourselves through the eyes of this you know supposed android and of course there's the biggie I've got so many other things I could say about this one and cut off with this one um, Star Trek is storytelling you know and it, it's not explanatory and people prefer stories to explanations uh, an explanation of something whether it's social or scientific theory it really only affects and persuades a very limited number of people you even see politics is a perfect example Whereas a story illustrates a principle in action, demonstrating it from from cause to consequence in a way that's uh, related to experience rather than just to knowledge and to theory. And I think that's why parables and uh, stories are so effective in influencing people. You, You know, from the Bible to the commercials you watch on TV, the principle applies. You don't explain why the car works, you just demonstrate that it's fast, it's beautiful, and you really need to have it. You know, you, you sell the sizzle, not the steak, as they used to, used to say. And uh, these stories, whether they you regard them as myths and legends, they are about truths, not about factual reality as such. Uh, and that's what makes them timeless, because truth is a timeless quality whereas the context of the day fades with time. And I really think that's one of the reasons that uh, Star Trek has uh, lasted so long. Just one last story about Star Trek before I go here. I actually attended one Star Trek convention, the first one they, the first one they ever had. I took my daughter and some friends way back in Toronto, and they held it at. It was, I think, this was in the later late 80s, early 90s, at the airport hotel in Toronto. It was a disaster from an organizer's point of view, and I hear the organizers got fired because of it. Uh, it they just didn't expect the crowds they got, and the the. Uh, the special guest, the big draw at the time, was Brent Spiner. He was the featured attraction. And, uh, by the way, Star Trek The Next Generation was still in production at this time, okay? So it was the only other one there. And uh, it was interesting. It was winter, I believe it was February, and, and Brent Spiner arrived late from another convention he had just been attending in Montreal. So we were all waiting for him at about 2 o'clock, but he didn't show up till about 4 or 5 because there were some snowstorms in the area. And, um... But he got there by 5, and there was a huge crowd there, a little bit, you know, antsy from sitting there all day. And the wait was worth it, folks. These actors can really entertain, and they can be very personable even in in front of a crowd of thousands. And uh, what was very interesting, what he told us at the time, was that here he was, uh, it was about 5 o'clock in Toronto, and he had to be on the set in L.A. at 4 a.m. the next morning to put makeup on and then get ready for shooting around 7 o'clock and uh when they tell you they don't they, they actually do not read the scripts in advance they do not know what they are they don't even know what the show's about they're given one line at a time and every camera angle is shot individually so say somebody says uh, boo to somebody and the other guy reacts well that's two separate shots they have to flip the cameras around do everything and it's just like almost putting silly putty you know uh clay pieces together and and it really shows you how good an actor has to be to make it look like it's smooth you know you ever see that uh, that episode where data played three characters Brent spiner played uh, uh his brother lore and i forget who the father was i don't forget what his name was um dr Noonien singh or something like that and uh, when you watch the show you think you're watching three three completely different actors but uh, so if you're wondering why I do use uh, Star Trek clips uh, you might even hear one later today if we do get to it but maybe not um, that's one of the reasons it's a uh, it's a very uh, identifiable and uh, timeless type of a show that that really relates to a lot of issues now when we come back after this break going to be getting into uh, part two of a subject I talked about last week and that was socialism and the whole uh, Nazi and Hitler situation. We're going to go to the other side of the coin today and talk about fascism right after this.
0: Did you go as a clean-on, Bob? No,
1: I'm afraid I'm not that big of a trackie. No, sorry. (laughs) I'm not a Starfleet commander. (laughs) Or T.J. Hooker. (laughs) I don't live on Starship ncc (laughs) 170 or own a phaser I don't know
0: anyone named Bones Sulu or Spock
1: and no I've never had green alien sex but I'm sure it'd be quite an evening
0: and are advancing
1: on American... It's John Jenkins broadcasting from London, and
0: the bombs are falling even as we speak, And the morale of the boys is good here at Guadalcanal, despite heavy losses.
1: What do you think, Martin? You think Hitler's gonna win?
0: Sometimes I wonder about the wisdom of bringing new life into the world, I'll tell you that. Come on, lights out! Oh. oh, God, another air raid drill. When the Nazis and the communists give me those reds. Stick to your fish.
1: Hey.
0: What do they want, those Nazis, to slaughter everyone on the planet? The
1: Nazis, the communists, the world would be better off without any of them, believe mm. me. Come
0: on. You know what W.C. Fields said, don't you?
1: Hmm.
0: He said to settle a war, the leaders of the countries involved should meet in a stadium and fight it out with socks filled with horse manure.
1: Well, that would be a unique way to fight out a war. I don't know that they'd... uh, It'd be one of those situations where, you know, what if they gave a war and nobody came? (laughs) Uh, Welcome back. You're listening to Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW 94.9 FM. Last week, I talked a little bit about... uh, Actually, the subject was Hitler is a socialist, and I talked about how... uh, all the, all the uh, you know, government um, policies and plans of the Nazis were very socialistic. They had everything, all the benefits that uh, we seem to enjoy in Canada today from socialized health care, workers' compensation, affirmative action. You can go through the whole list. And, uh, and of course, the name was also, uh, you know, the Nationalist Socialists. But, of course, most people think about the Nazi regime as being a fascist regime, and I thought maybe this would be the time to try and distinguish the difference between the two and perhaps how it might reflect to us. And uh, perhaps uh, I can do it best by relating to a story that was actually originally, or uh, a parable, I guess, that was actually originally t- uh, told by a fellow named Leonard E. Reed, And uh, he basically argued, uh, you know, did you know that if you, if you take a frog and you put it in a pot of cold water on top of the stove, then gradually turn up the heat, gradually, the frog will actually stay in the water without trying to jump out of the pot. In fact, if you turn up the heat slowly enough, it will actually cook to death without ever trying to escape. Now, I'm not going to recommend that anyone try this at home, but uh, that apparently is the way that parable goes. And so you might be thinking, well, dumb frog, right? Right. Well, maybe, but that has nothing to do with why the frog seems willing to die. Unfortunately, the poor frog dies simply because the change in heat is so slow that it doesn't realize that it is in an environment which is dangerous to its well-being. And I think in the same way, right now, each of us is like a frog in that pot, uh, very uncomfortably warm, yet comfortable, water, quote, end quote, which is about to become even hotter. As each day passes, those who have the the power to turn the heat up or down, our elected politicians increasingly choose to turn the heat up. More laws, more taxes, more restrictions, more controls by politicians, and of course, less and less control for citizens and for taxpayers. So, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before the political waters in Ontario come to a boil. And our well-being is about to be threatened by a political environment that has a nasty name with nasty connotations, and that name is fascism. And I think it's time most of us woke up to the fact that fascism is increasingly becoming a dominant philosophy in Ontario's mixed economy system. I know some of you are saying, well, that's a little strong, a little strong word to use. It's a little too strong to apply to Canadian politics because, of course, what happened to Hitler and what happened in Europe during World War II, it just couldn't happen here. And then anybody who would use that word is being unreasonably alarmist, like, hey, you know, McGinty isn't Hitler and, and Tory isn't Hitler and, and Harper or any of the rest of them. But remember the frog. Had the change in Canada's political environment that has taken a generation to condition us to its acceptance, um, otherwise occurred in, say, five years, we'd all be very aware of its nature. The change in temperature would have been much more noticeable, we would be much more able to sense how radically we have shifted away from the fundamental workings of a free, tolerant and prosperous society and fallen right into the clutches of the very ideology that thousands of Canadians died and fought, or fought and died to protect us from. Now, of course I'm not going to say that Ontario's predominantly fascist, certainly not yet, but our current mixed economy, which is uh, part capitalist, which is private property, individual freedom and choice, part socialist, which is state ownership and monopoly, and increasingly fascist, state control of private property. Uh, I, th- I think it's coming to a boil, and if we're not careful, that frog, which is us, uh, just might croak. Um, increasingly, the political direction here in Ontario is towards fascism. You see more state control of private property and private choice. Uh, you know, it's important for for us to realize and recognize it politically, the distinguishing characteristic that separates a socialist policy or communist, which is essentially the same thing, state ownership and control, from a fascist policy is not to be found in their similar philosophies. They're both. State control. They are both on the left. It is totally incorrect to say that fascism is extreme right wing. It is no such thing. Fascism is the other side of the socialism coin. It is a left ideology. And it is the general result of all left wing ideologies. I don't think you'll find too many uh, communist nations that don't eventually turn quite fascist because they're forced to for a number of reasons. But um, what separates... uh, Communism and socialism, let's say, from fascism is the role in which private property uh, plays and how they look at it as the means of production. Whereas socialists would uphold the doctrine of government ownership and control of, quote, the means of production, which means no private property, total government control, fascists, on the other hand, simply uphold the doctrine of state control, dispensing with the need to consider the status of property at all. After all, in practice... Control is ownership. Look, you might own your car, but if somebody else is telling you where to go with it, how to drive it, uh, w- what you can do with it, don't they really own it? Does it really matter whose name is on the title deed? And that's sort of where we're going today. For example, you might uh, compare um, uh, a control over private property. You might think this is strong, but uh, when when our politicians banned uh, smoking in public places, in bars where, you know, you had a choice to go in if you wanted to or not. Smokers should be in a free society allowed to associate, uh, even if it's not just in their own home, regardless of what you might think about smoking. But that is a policy that one might call fascist. And it wouldn't be it would make a society fascist, but that policy by itself would be because it's state control over private property, over something that it would otherwise be legal in most cases. And so... Um, you know though they may call themselves socialist conservatives or liberals don't be surprised by most politicians very eager support of all kinds of fascist policies rent controls for example uh, is is a fascist policy where you're telling a landlord who owns his property what he can actually charge people uh, mm-hmm. to to rent from him versus instead, you know, why, why, would, why not just have the government take over the guy's building and they can charge what they want then? What would the difference really be? Of course, and this is what Hitler understood. He said, and that's why he was anti-communist, because he understood that if a person didn't have a personal interest in the property that their name was on, they wouldn't look after it. Uh, this is one of the major things you see in socialist countries, the deterioration of the public, uh, the commons, really. Because if, you know, if everyone owns something, then no one owns it and no one really has an interest in protecting it. Official bilingualism, for example, uh, I would consider a fascist policy because it talks about the kind of language you can uh, use in day-to-day parlance. Pay equity laws would be one. Uh, Sunday shopping laws, uh, when we had them. Censorship certainly is. Uh, Gun control, minimum wage laws, forced union dues, hiring quotas, discrimination laws, drug prohibition. These are all fascist policies. And I guess it depends how many you have. Um, whether you want to decide whether uh, we live in a fascist state or not. What each of these policies has in common is that each represents a control on private property, contract, or choice. And whether you agree with them or disagree with them, uh, both in theory and practice, these controls can properly be referred to as being fascist. And once a society has enough of such policies in place, there is very little that can be done to prevent the same type of catastrophe that enveloped Europe during the Second World War. Now, of course, uh, one, two, or three, or even four fascist policies does not a fascist state make, necessarily. Just how many have to be in place before we can no longer avoid that label, um, I suppose, is a matter of personal judgment. And I'll leave that one for you to decide. Right after this, we'll come back to talking a little bit about war and why we should be knowing a little bit more about war. When were nuclear weapons taken off the table? What is this, like our mother's good China syndrome? We're just never going to use them? (laughs) And you know something? Don't say you're never going to use it. What good
0: does that do? You've got to act flaky about it. (laughs)
1: History has shown us that strength may be useless when faced with terrorism. There's another one of those Star Trek clips talking about terrorism and war. And, uh, you know, it's from the future, and here we are in the past, uh, quite relative to Star Trek. Um, saw an article in the National Post, uh, the headline, full an article, a full-page feature, was called Why Study War? Written by Victor Dave- Davis Hansen, who is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, down in the United States. And uh, I guess he was expressing some, some concern that North Americans tend to lack a basic understanding of military matters and, and uh, really don't understand how wars are conducted and that the state of affairs is very troubling, he says, for democratic citizenship requires knowledge of war. And especially now, in an age of weapons of mass annihilation, uh, more than ever, and he says uh, this is particularly true in the academic realm, that the acad- there's a tremendous neglect of uh, study of war. It's even more acute today than it has been in the past. I'm sure my guest John Thompson from the McKenzie Institute, who was on the show and who studies uh, this very subject and terrorism and, and stuff like that, would agree. Uh, Yet he says, you know, popular culture displays an extraordinary enthusiasm for things military. You know, there's a military history channel. Hollywood churns out a whole, you know, steady supply of blockbuster war movies. Uh, whether it's saving private Ryan uh, to 3 uh, 300 you have historical reenactment societies that stage history's great battles you know from the Roman legions to uh, the Wehrmacht and uh, I have friends that are really into this uh, thing too the uh, doing the historical reenactments and they go to all the events that that, that are held all around North America And uh, the author comments that the public itself may be drawn to military history because it wants to learn about honour and sacrifice and because of an interest in technology and uh, things of that nature. Um, But he asks a question, and he says, this is one that really needs to be answered, and that's, why do wars break out? And how do they end? And why do the winners win and the losers lose? Uh, How can we best avoid wars or or at least contain their worst effects? And, uh, you know... This is an interesting comment he makes. He says, quote, Perhaps what bothers us about wars, though, isn't just their horrific lethality, but also that people choose to wage them, which makes them seem kind of avoidable, like a flu virus, or unlike, rather, a flu virus or a car wreck, and their tolls are unduly grievous. Yet military history also reminds us that war is very utilitarian and you know as british strategist basil little hart put it quote war is always a matter of doing evil in the hope that some good may come of it war or threats of wars put an end have put an end to chattel slavery to nazism to fascism to japanese militarism and soviet communism and finally military history has the moral purpose of educating us about past sacrifices that have secured our present freedom and security well That's an interesting comment. I really don't think that when you are saying that you have to do evil in the hope that some good will come out of it, I don't think that's evil. I think that's good. I think it's a misnomer to call the person who's playing the defensive role uh, evil. But if there's one thing I've uh, been learning from history, it's that we never seem to learn from history. And uh, just to briefly comment on a quick summary of really what does cause war... Uh, I, I refer you to Ayn Rand again, who wrote a terrific essay called The Roots of War, in an essay uh, that appeared as long ago as June 66. And she said that, uh, you know, statism is the cause of wars, the belief in the things I was just talking about, fascism, socialism, things like that. Because statism, which is basically more government rights and group rights rather than individual rights is a system of institutionalized violence and perpetual civil war it leaves people no cho- no choice but to fight to seize political power you're either going to be robbed or be robbed you're going to be either killed or, or killed or or you have to kill yourself there is no peace within an enslaved nation Uh, You know, in full dictatorship, statism takes the form of bloody purges, uh, you know, sort of like in Nazi Germany or Soviet Russia. In a mixed economy, which is what we live in, it takes the form of pressure group warfare, each group fighting for legislation to extort its own advantages by force from other groups. And does that sound familiar to you? I think we call those, that pressure group thing, we call them elections here in the country. And in order to survive under such a system, men have no choice but to fear, hate, and destroy one another. Uh, Statism needs war. A free country does not. Uh, Statism, whether socialism or fascism, survives by looting. A free country survives by production. So you know Rand's conclusion and her summary on that whole issue is that laissez-faire capitalism is the only social system based on the recognition of individual rights and therefore the only system that bans force from social relationships. And by the very nature of, of its basic principles and interests, it's the only system that's really fundamentally opposed to war. And then she reminds us of this. Quote, Let those who are actually concerned with peace Observe that capitalism gave mankind the longest period of peace in history. And that was a period during the, which there were no wars involving the entire civilized world, from the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 to the outbreak of World War I in 1914. 99 years! So remember that private citizens, whether rich or poor, businessmen or workers, they've got no power to start a war. Only governments can do that. And yet, it is not limited government that today's peace lovers are advocating. Think about that for a minute and keep that in mind for the rest of the week. We'll be back next week talking about faith funding, religion, and the whole kettle of fish that's just opened up this week in the election. So between now and then, be right, do right, stay right, think right, and act right. Take care. We'll see you next week.
0: Colour it to black and white. Under the bedclothes clothes, everything will be alright. I speak
1: English. And French. Not Klingon. I drink Labats, not Romulan Ale. And when someone says to me, live long and prosper. I seriously mean it when I say, get a life.
0: My doctor's name is not McCoy, it's Ginsburg.
1: And tribbles were puppets, not real animals. Puppets! And when I speak, I never ever talk like every word is its own sentence.